You're listening to All Things Crime, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, Missing Persons, Scene of the Crime, Three Men and a Mystery, DNA ID, Malice, Riddle Me That, and Zodiac Speaking. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. Warning. All Things Crime is a true crime production that may contain violent or disturbing material. Viewer or listener discretion is advised. We had a lot of fun with my naivety, you know, as we were... (laughs) doing crime scenes that now wait a minute you're saying you can't watch a few episodes of csi and and be a a csi expert (laughs) well interestingly enough that is the theory that some people have when i've gone to to court um a lot of the jurors watch csi they watch all this stuff and so a lot of the questions you'll get uh pertain to that you know because they've seen something on csi and i have gone to crime scenes where they have actually told me what i need to do because they watch csi and <laughs> it, it, it's really quite comical in some sense because you know you these people are trying to help they're not trying to you know be in the way um but uh i gotta put a a a, a little you know, thing in for victim advocates because they certainly helped me a lot when I go to these scenes. Uh, the victim advocates would keep the family and the people kind of out of the way, so and explain things to them. And and they were they were just so imperative to to a good investigation in my. Francine, welcome to All Things Crime. Thanks, Jared. I'm glad to be here. Oh, you know, finally, we've tried this before, and now we're we finally got together, and it has uh, been too long. So I think we're on episode like 36 or something like that for All Things Crime, <laughs> and it's taken me this long to get you on as a guest. You know, well, I'm glad but, to be here. I uh, it's not because I haven't wanted to. It's just been really busy. Right, right. Better Lots late of crime than never. Out there. Yeah. I know you are just amazingly busy, and so just excited excited to have you on. And uh, for all of those watching and listening, this is Francine Bardol. She is a dear friend of mine, and she is also just a consummate professional in the forensics world. She was a crime scene investigator for 20-plus years and has all sorts of experience and um I think you'll be amazed also at her background, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about all of that. So, met Francine going on ten years ago when she was a crime scene investigator for West Jordan Police Department, and now she is uh, retired and doing her own thing. And so, Francine, I wanted to welcome you to the show and give you that brief introduction, but most importantly, give you the chance to introduce yourself and and tell the audience who you are. Well, thank you, Jared. Well. I'll tell you what, there's a lot of history behind how I'm, where I'm at right now. Um, it uh, didn't happen until a little bit later in my life when I'd raised my children. I uh, went to college and I was going to become a, a lawyer. And in that process, they told me that I couldn't work more than 12 hours a week the first year because it would be far too demanding. 
which with raising five children, that wasn't about to happen. So I kind of put that on hold and uh, I went in another direction. And I did do internships out at the uh, old prison. It used to be the 288 Correctional Facility out here in Utah. And this is a facility that they built to bring younger men in so they could be habilitated. Uh, after you know they were younger, they thought if they put them in with um, the older uh, men that they would get bad ideas and, and become worse. And so they put them in the 288 and this was an experiment. Well, needless to say the experiment didn't go very well because uh, you need a lot of older males and alpha males to keep the younger ones into um, into line, believe it or not, is part of the animal kingdom as well. And so they changed the, the program and now it is the women's prison. So um, I did an internship there for, you know, not the women, but with the 288 for a long time. And I, and I find it really, really interesting. I, I felt that this was something maybe I might be interested in, you know, instead of, of law. And as time went on, I was able to finally um, get a job at the old Salt Lake Metro Jail. This is the old one. This is the olden days. It's an era in history that will never happen again. And it was the most exciting place to work in the whole wide world. I remember standing out there and thinking, I love my job. It was smelly. It was nasty. It was awful. And I loved my job. <laughs> so this is where I got to see how real life was, you know, when you work with uh, people that are arrested and criminals and some weren't criminals, some were arrested for other reasons. And, and it was just kind of interesting. And uh, I truly, I truly liked working there. And as time went on, I ended up being um, kind of a court liaison for pretrial services and the court. So when I'd go to court. Hi, I'm Jules from Riddle Me That True Crime. I'm Robin Warder from The Trail Went Cold, and Jules and I want to tell you a little bit about a case that means a great deal to us, the death of nine-month-old baby Jacob Landine on April the 10th, 1987, in Socorro, New Mexico. The day prior to his death, on April 9th, baby Jacob was being watched by his mother Brenda's new boyfriend, John, not his real name, in his mobile home on 1453 Fatima Drive. While John was babysitting Jacob, Jacob would incur what would be his second head injury in a period of weeks. The prior head injury was a subdural hematoma or brain bleed, and it was serious enough that it needed to be lanced to take pressure off baby Jacob's brain while being monitored by doctors over the course of several days. The circumstances surrounding how Jacob was injured and subsequently died are murky at best, with the suspect giving multiple versions of the events of the day, ranging from Jacob choking and accidentally hitting his head while trying to dislodge a cookie, to Jacob falling and John returning to see the injured infant. The suspect also reportedly confessed to officers that he was indeed responsible, but there is no paper or audio record of this confession in the police file. The reasons given by the DA for not pursuing the case are confusing as well, with one of the reasons being that they were worried that John would file charges against the state. It was the opinion of the doctors that baby Jacob was struck in the head and this was no accident. In the years to follow, John goes on to sexually abuse young Eric well as physically abusing his mother Brenda and emotionally abusing and isolating them both, making the world very small. 
During the autopsy, layers of abuse seem to be present. A healing rib fracture from around the time of the first head injury is also discovered. It's impossible to say exactly when the injury took place, but what is clear is that someone was abusing young Jacob, and that person was most likely John. Eric Landine, Jacob's brother, has been fighting to get justice for him. However, he faces some obstacles such as the statute of limitations of six years on second-degree murder that State Representative Bill Ream has petitioned to have overturned. Join Robin and I, as well as criminologist Dr. Ashley Wellman, an investigative expert, a legal expert, a forensic psychiatrist, as well as Jacob's brother, Eric, as we explore all angles of this case and try to bring awareness, understanding, and hopefully, ultimately, justice for Jacob. The series starts on March the 1st. Tune in on your favorite podcast app. Uh, we would, the, the defense or prosecution, depending, would want to uh, probably have a recommendation that they get released on pretrial or that they don't. And uh, I took the job really serious. Uh, and I'll tell you, I, I went over every name that was going to go to court to see how they'd been with pretrial releases in the past, if they met criteria. And I'll never forget, I, I kept interrupting when they'd say, we want them released to pretrial services. And I remember, this is my first day, and I, and I interrupted and I said, uh, no, Your Honor, he, I have no, I, you know, there's no reason to believe he'll carry through because the last few times he's been released, uh, he didn't follow through. And I kept doing this. And, and all of a sudden, it's time to go to lunch. I'll never forget this judge. I love this judge. But he looked at everyone. He says, you know, court is dismissed. And he pointed at me and he said, except for you. And I'll never forget that day. I felt my heart beating in my forehead. I knew I was in trouble. And he came walking down off that bench in his black robe. And he looked at me and he was all serious. And he said, I like the job you're doing. You're not just sitting there letting things go by. You're doing a great job. This is so good. And I'm going, oh, oh, I thought, oh, oh, my gosh. Everything just dropped. I just thought, oh my gosh, thank heavens. And then I thought, wow, you know, this is really interesting. You know, I, I wonder how many things go by the wayside because people don't pay attention or, you know, people are released maybe that that shouldn't be. And it just started my curiosity. As time went on, um, I finally took on a position uh, with uh, the state of Utah as an independent contractor through adult probation and parole. And uh, this was really interesting because I got to do pre-sentence investigation reports. What that is, is if somebody pleads guilty to a crime, they have 30 days before their sentence. So in that 30-day period of time, my job was to interview these defendants, either in jail or prison or at adult probation and parole, and basically get their life history from the beginning, when they were born, to when the crime was committed. That's that could be a lot of information and a lot of them had a lot of thick files. And I found that so, so interesting because I can honestly tell you, there is not one person I interviewed. I did this for almost five years and there's not one, I don't care what they did that I didn't find something good about. I mean, it was really interesting. And I, and I was able to also see um, little red flags in their life uh, when things would start changing and when things started happening in their life. And basically I call what I did a Van Gogh in words because I thought I did a really good job. And I would kind of paint a picture of this person's life, you know, the good things and the bad things and the, the terrific, the horrific things that happen. And then the court would look at this 
and uh, there you would get this all this information, and then the court would look at it, and then uh, a determination would be uh, made as to the sentencing of this person. And I did this for a long time, and some of these cases that I did in the defendants, I, they, they were horrific cases. There were homicides. There were all sorts, and I would have to call the victim as part of this report process. And I would have to talk to them and find out how this crime has affected them. What has this done to your life? Um, and also, is there any restitution owing? And interestingly enough, when I call them, they'd be angry at me. I, I, I you know, I hadn't really done anything. I try to get information, but, but people don't see all the steps that it takes in between, you know, the crime and then the sentencing. And they, they would get mad and they'd say, well, you paid a lot of attention to me at the beginning, but now I haven't heard from you for a year. Or I don't even know what's going on. And they'd be very upset. I mean, and righteously so, I think, you know, I, I do. I mean, I, I, I couldn't even imagine what they had gone through. This got me thinking, what do they go through? I, I've watched television shows. I've read books. I, all this stuff that talks about this kind of stuff. But I really didn't know what someone went through on the onset of a crime. So interestingly enough, while I was doing this, a part-time position with Western City Police uh, Department became open and uh, it paid really bad, And but it required, it had a lot of requirements, uh, but it's part-time. And I thought, you know, I, I wanna do this. I wanna see what victims go through on the onset of crime. I understand the defendants and, and their lives and some of the stuff that's happened, but I've never really sat down or I've seen what a victim goes through. So that's why I took that job to begin with. And um, after after a while, I, I really liked it. And so um, I didn't renew my contract with the state and I went full-time with West Jordan Police Department because I could see the need to be to, to be there when something happens you can see the the crime you can see the evidence you can everything's laid out in this picture and your uh, your job is to determine from what is there what you need to take back and what photos you need to take and what you need to do to help these families have closure and to help law enforcement solve the crime and perfect position perfect. And so I really started paying attention to what I was collecting for evidence, um, looking at it from more uh, fingerprint and DNA perspective, because that's where we get most of our stuff. I remember the first case I went on, I collected 40 items of evidence. <laughs> it was a residential burglary. <laughs> and needless to say, they were, they were not happy I hauled in all this stuff. I thought I'm going to be so thorough. They're going to be so proud of me. And oh, well, over the years, you'll learn you've you got to be a little bit more particular about what you're collecting. That might be a little excessive for a burglary. It, it was. Well, <laughs> I, I was I was a newbie. I was learning. I was fresh off the streets. I'd worked with defendants. I hadn't worked, you know, the crime scenes. And I remember when they called me one time, um, they called me out on a full arrest. This is my first full arrest. And I remember going there and and I'm looking at everybody uh, and I 
I said, well, where's the full arrest? And they said, in the other room. And I went in and there's this person who is dead. And I says, well, where's the person that's arrested? I, and I thought it was a fully arrested person. <laughs> I didn't know it was a death. So you can see there was a big learning curve that had to happen for me. And, and we had a lot of fun with my naivety, you know, as we were... <laughs> doing crime scenes that now wait a minute you're saying you can't watch a few episodes of csi and and be a, a csi expert <laughs> well interestingly enough that is the theory that some people have when i've gone to to court um a lot of the jurors watch csi they watch all this stuff and so a lot of the questions you'll get uh pertain to that you know because they've seen something on csi and I have gone to crime scenes where they have actually told me what I need to do because they watch CSI. And <laughs> it, it, it's really quite comical in some sense because, you know, you, these people are trying to help. They're not trying to, you know, be in the way. Um, but uh, I got to put a, a, a little, you know, thing in for victim advocates because they certainly helped me a lot when I go to these scenes. Uh, the victim advocates would keep the family and the people kind of out of the way so and explain things to them and and they were they were just so imperative to to a good investigation in my opinion so for all you victim advocates out there i gotta tell you you do a good job and anyway so what i noticed was that paying attention to detail and understanding why you are going to collect something what's the purpose of this give you an example so we go to a, a store robbery and they take some money and as they run out they some of the money they took a dollar bill or whatever falls to the floor somebody says okay we're going to take a picture of this okay yes we're going to take a picture to show that this money was taken and it fell to the floor then i want you to collect it and um i want you to process it for fingerprints now, if this was a homicide, you might want to think about that, but think how many people touch that dollar. Think how many people touch the counters at the bank. Think how many people touch the doorknobs and how often they're really cleaned and, and wiped down. So there's a lot of overlays, a lot of things. So you have to be very particular about where you're going to collect fingerprints. Uh, you don't want to do it where everybody's been touching unless that's all you've got. And hopefully you have the skills and everything to do what you need to do to collect the fingerprints. But I learned right on that uh, fingerprints were really important and that you had to be careful where you collected them and what you're going to collect them on. And then that led me to some other, you know, I go to crime scenes and I started learning about DNA. And remember DNA, you know, it really didn't start getting really popular, you know, for a long time. And I, when I started, um, I remember in order to get a, a profile from, from DNA, you needed DNA, a blood drop or a blood spot the size of a quarter in order to get a profile of DNA. That's a lot. Now you only need less than a pinhead, you need just a little bit. Things have come a long way. But I, I wanted to learn about it. And what set me off on that is I can recall that we had a homicide and it was on Easter and it was so cold and rainy. And the fellow who had been murdered was laying in this big, it was like, it was just all this mud. It was just, you know, so rainy and cold and it, it had happened um, early in the morning. And there were all these shell casings. And I didn't really know about DNA, but I had gone to Sorensen Forensics uh, years ago. They uh, did a couple of classes on DNA collection and how to collect. And so I, I wanted to go and see what it was like. 
And I got to know a woman, Carol Raleigh, who worked there. I just, just, she is just so pivotal in what I do because she is kind of my mentor in the very beginning. She worked for Sorensen Forensics and I called her. She gave me her cell phone number if I had any questions ever. So kind for her to do that because most people will not do that at a training. And on this Easter Sunday, I called her and I said, can you get DNA off of shell casings? And she said, I says, I don't know if it'd be worth collecting. She goes, oh yes, collecting, because sometimes you can get them. And, and I says, and, and how about if they're in the mud? And she goes, oh, you know, well, collect them anyway. And because, you know, they were raining and in the mud and we really didn't know. And so I collected them and, and we became, Carol just was so informative. Um, so I, I can't even begin to tell you, whenever I needed to know something, I could call her. Thank you for listening to All Things Crime. We are so grateful for all of our listeners. If you enjoyed this, please give us a positive review so other people can find it as well. Have an amazing All Things Crime Day.